You're listening to the Fiverr Podcast, where we spotlight the success and struggles of people, organizations, and companies from all around Fiverr country. In this week's episode, Dale Buss talks with Greg Wassmansdorf, the chair of the Site Selectors Guild in North America and senior managing director for global strategy and consulting at Newmark. As a leader in economic development, Greg brings an interesting and insightful perspective to the podcast as he and Dale discuss up-and-coming megaprojects throughout our region, as well as the requirements for a healthy, holistic, economic view that will allow these projects to succeed. There's a lot to cover, so let's listen in. So this week on the Flyover Podcast, we're talking with Greg Wassmansdorf, who is the chair of the Site Selectors Guild in North America. We're going to ask him a little bit about that, and Greg is also Senior Managing Director for Global Strategy and Consulting at Newmark, uh, a leading economic development consulting firm. So we're going to talk a little bit about what is economic development consulting, very basically, initially and quickly, and then we're going to talk about that in flyover country and what you see is happening uh, in our region, some of the areas you're overseeing. So tell me a little bit about what Newmark does first, Greg, and what is the Site Selectors Guild exactly, and what, what are the objectives of that organization? Sure. Uh, I'll take those in reverse order. So first okay. of all, Site Selectors Guild. Uh, I'm, I've been on the executive board of the guild for about four years now, the chair. Uh, the guild is now a global organization. We have 61 members, uh, and these are the, uh, the, the preeminent uh, location strategy and site selection consultants uh, in this business who are uh, competitors, right? But friendly competitors uh, who, who come together under this uh, organization called the Site Selectors Guild. It's the foremost organization of its type. And all of the consultants who work uh, uh, for their own firms, but are now members of the, of the guild are really here to build relationships with each other, but mm -hmm. continue to build the professionalism uh, and support a code of ethics uh, for the management consulting work in corporate site selection. Okay. And over the last several years, guild members themselves have been involved in, in the announced creation of several hundred thousands of jobs on client projects and uh, tens of billions of dollars of new capital investment. So it's a membership organization uh, members are primarily in the United States, but there is international representation in Canada, Europe, and Asia as well. Well, congratulations uh, at on Newmark. your leadership role uh, there. Thank you. And, so, and what about Newmark, where we're also obviously a leader? Yeah, thank you. So Newmark is, uh, is by most measures, one of the top five real estate services companies in the world. And within Newmark, we do a lot of different things, but we have a consulting organization called Newmark Global Strategy and Consulting. Mm -hmm. And again, many different service lines uh, from workplace strategy, working with our corporate clients, but we also have great strength in business location strategy, economic incentives, and the flip side of that corporate work is economic development consulting. And that's helping federal, state and provincial, uh, regional and local economic development organizations with their economic development strategies, their target industry strategies and approaches to investment attraction and uh, investment readiness. 
Right, so let's talk about that because one of the thing, one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you now for for this podcast is the Site Selectors Guild just recently put out a new survey and kind of assessment of economic development and globally, but focusing on mega projects. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, we're used to hearing about mega projects. Go back to Saturn, go to the Panasonic Gigafactory that went in Nevada, uh, Amazon HQ2 that went to Arlington, Virginia. But now there seems we seem to be peppered with all sorts of talk about mega projects, Ford and GM putting tens of billions of dollars in Tennessee, Kentucky. Uh, Of course, the huge Intel announcement for Ohio. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Why are we seeing this flurry of mega projects? Let's start there. And I want to talk about the impact on flyover country. Sure. Yeah. So there's a lot going on uh, and there are all kinds of reasons for this happening. There are macro and, and micro level issues and they change from industry to industry. So one of the things that came out in that site selectors guild research was that we are, as consultants and, and people who work with the economic development community, we're expecting mega projects to be really, really active in, in five major fields, uh, automotive and EV batteries, uh, chemicals and petrochemicals, data centers, and other computer hardware manufacturing. You mentioned semiconductor, for example, uh, life science, uh, but also aerospace and defense. And the, the drivers or the decision-making factors that drive those investment decisions for new sites and new major projects, what we call loosely mega projects, if they're more or less a billion dollars or more and have very large uh, site and infrastructure requirements, those driving issues are a little different, right? As you go from sector to sector, Uh, but there are also some commonalities. Uh, We're certainly seeing a change in what globalization means. And this was even pre-pandemic. There was a shift a little bit away from uh, a one major plant on the other side of the world being the single source of product for some companies. Uh, companies are starting to shift more to a regional strategy. So putting major facilities, yes, in Asia, but also into Europe uh, or into Europe, Middle East and Africa, uh, and then also into the Americas, taking that more of a continental or regional approach. And then, of course, that was magnified through COVID and the fact that supply chains that had been very finely tuned on a global basis uh, were stretched to the point of, in many cases, a breaking point. And that really forced many companies and industries to relook at what a globalization strategy means for them. Uh, and the other sort of constant in all of this is what some people call the Amazonization of, of most industries. And that is to say, business customers and, and end user consumers just expect product to be available faster. Yeah. And so you can't deliver quickly if you are sourcing uh, manufactured products and manufactured goods on the other side of the world. You need to put production and you need to put inventories closer to the end user customer. So again, that forces more of a regionalization strategy. Then we see geopolitical stress uh, globally. And so that's also causing what we sometimes call supply chain sovereignty to kick in with countries saying, listen, I don't want to be reliant on production in another country where tariff issues or other geopolitical strains or constraints may put us at risk. And so let's bring some of that production back onto either home turf or into nearby turf with allied countries and 
U.S., Canada, Mexico are a good example of, a, of an America's strategy that seems to work very well in many industries. And then industry by industry, we see forces at work, uh, policy changes, uh, and technological changes that are really accelerating this mega project investment that you're referring to, uh, mega project investment closer to home. And that's certainly the case in the United States, but also in Canada um, and to a certain degree in, in Mexico. And so automotive is the best example where countries all around the world have made climate change and decarbonization uh, commitments that translates into uh, a close attention to industries like transportation and how do you decarbonize the transportation sector? Well, you move toward an EV strategy. And so as a result of countries saying that by 2030, for example, a certain percentage of vehicles must be uh, sold into the market with electric platform only, then that is the market cue, right? That is the market yeah. signal for all the automotive manufacturers to say, okay, if I'm gonna take a market share of that EV demand uh, that is now mandated, then I need to start building plants for automotive assembly and realign my supply chain near me, including the battery. All right, so clearly all these developments you're mentioning favor North America and in your guild survey, it was, it was unanimous that North America is gonna be the biggest beneficiary of all this, but will flyover country be the biggest beneficiary? I mean, we're hearing all these reports about new investments in flyover country, but is that anecdotal or in total and you know, trend-wise, is the middle of the country going to benefit more from these trends you outline than say the coasts? Yeah, so I'd say, first of all, it's a global phenomenon. North America will certainly win, but of course, Asia and Europe will continue to win, I'll say their, their fair share of projects. But within North America, you know, when we're talking about manufacturing pro uh, projects in particular, the right. like mega sites, Sometimes they're office oriented, but mostly in the industrial sector, it means you need a lot of land and you need a lot of uh, utility and other infrastructure to support that. That's very difficult to locate and to execute uh, economically on the coasts in, in large urbanized areas. So there's a little bit of a, just a geographic force factor mm -hmm. pushing the site search in toward the middle of the country. But I'd say we're really, it's a little bit of an all of the above strategy at the moment. You know, I think several years ago, you would not have expected automotive assembly to be happening, for example, in Arizona and Nevada. Yeah. And yet some of the disruptors in EV automotive platforms have, have made, that, made that bet, right? Yeah. They've, they've mm -hmm. placed their money into Nevada and uh, and Arizona, as an example, away from the traditional automotive corridor, the you know within what you might call the flyover country states, uh, there are plenty of opportunities. Uh, but as I've said before, as as guild members have said on 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 panels and at our site selectors guild, you know conferences and things, uh, there's a lot of work that needs to be done for states to be competitive with their regulatory environment, mm -hmm. with their, uh, with the utility infrastructure that's in place and, the, and the, what we call site readiness. Yeah. And that takes time and money uh, to focus the effort, 
between states, regional and, and county and local government, but also with the utilities and the uh, you know, rail companies, for example, all of those stakeholders that are required to, to turn land into a viable site, all of those actors uh, need to be coordinated and pulling in the same direction. And so we've, we've seen some states are better at doing that than others, uh, but there's plenty of opportunity to go around, I would say. Well, let me ask you about that, because uh, one thing we're in the middle of uh, in Michigan, where I live, is a lot of uh, alarm and to some extent finger pointing about why Michigan uh, didn't land a bigger share of the commitments made by our own, you know, homegrown automakers, General Motors and Ford and Chrysler, which is now Stellantis, uh, mm -hmm. in the EV investment that they've you know, decided to sprinkle around in places like Tennessee, Ohio, Indiana, Kentucky. You know, my view, though, and that of the Flyover Coalition is, yeah, uh, that's a reason for concern. But isn't there a, a level at which if somebody in flyover country wins or somebody in the upper Midwest wins, the entire ecosystem and the entire region win to a certain extent? Because when it comes to siting plants, hiring workers, creating jobs. I mean, to a great extent, uh, people will look at the coast and you know, there's a reason we're called flyover country, right? We're overlooked. Is that not gonna happen anymore? And is, is important for us to look at wins in the region as wins for all of us? Or is that just baloney? Well, I think generally it's true, uh, but there's a limit to the, uh, to the spread of the benefit across you know, county and state lines. Uh, it's certainly easier to make that argument if you're talking about a place like Cincinnati, where let's, for, for example, you could be on the south side or the north side of the Ohio River and Kentucky, Ohio, and even Indiana can share yeah. in some benefit mm -hmm. within a, a metro region that happens to, you know, cross three state boundaries. Right. Uh, but, you know, if we take automotive and, and the EV automotive platform, there are a lot fewer parts that actually go into an electric vehicle right. than a traditional uh, you know, gasoline powered engine platform. So there is a, call it a diminished return to a certain degree uh, and, and fewer suppliers to kind of be spread around a region in support of an OEM assembly factory. Mm -hmm. So there's a bit of a degradation of the multiplier effect there, you might say. So in the end, uh, the, the city, township, county, or metro area that lands the actual project will still be the clear winner. And so you mentioned Men Michigan, if I could come back to that for a moment. You know, Michigan, to a certain degree, and I, I, would, I would point to Ontario, for example, you know, Michigan and Ontario have been the two biggest automotive production jurisdictions uh, for decades. Yeah. Uh, and for a number of years, they went back and forth trading the title as being the number one, you know, location for, for a new, new vehicle assembly. Right. But over time, right, as automotive manufacturers put vehicles into other states and other jurisdictions, the total market share captured either by Ontario or Michigan just goes down and down and down, mm -hmm. which is tough to watch if you're looking at those legacy markets and wondering why they don't win more. Yeah. Partly it's just math. And so as 
as companies look to pioneer a little bit and go to new markets, find new workforces, find more competitive uh, jurisdictions uh, where, let's say, power might be cheaper or labor might be cheaper or what have you, then there's going to be a, a decline in total market share in places like Ontario and Michigan. But it's also a, a real clear signal that those two jurisdictions, to continue to focus on them for a moment, I can, I can pick on them. You live in Michigan. I happen to live in the Toronto area. So we, we can, this is fair game for us to mm-hmm. pick at our home jurisdictions a little bit. Mm-hmm. It, it, the onus is on them to, uh, as Stephen Covey used to say, sharpen the saw right? You can't get complacent. You have to continue to work on your competitive business climate, competitive, uh, continue to refine your regulatory environment to be, call it pro-business, but also pro-business means, you know, pro-utility, pro-worker training, right? You, You need qualified people, right? So you have to have a focus on education and training and reskilling and upskilling. Yeah. And what we're seeing with some of these mega projects going into smaller and smaller communities, there's an element of placemaking that really has to be factored in here. And so you can't just have a site and its utilities and hope that the project's going to be successful. Right. There's got to be a holistic economic development view that includes community development. So where will workers live? Is there affordable you know, worker housing? Is yeah. there transit? Is there schooling and all of those education and, and training issues that I, I mentioned already? Yeah, and isn't that an area of placemaking where in Flyover Country we do have a good a good shot at things? I mean, given I know housing prices have ballooned everywhere, but the cost of living generally is lower out here. There's more land. There, there are lots of amenities. I mean, the people from the coast who kind of explored living out here during the pandemic may have been you know pleasantly surprised. Uh, so mm-hmm. is placemaking something that can really help? the region in general, as well as specific locales. Yeah, I think, I think it can. And I think for these, you know, for these mega projects, but also, you know, let's keep in mind, right. That the consolation prizes uh, are still large economic development projects. Even if you don't win the, you know, the two and a half billion dollar battery plant, Mm -hmm. uh, there are still other, you know, good size economic development projects that can land in various communities. You know, it's still incumbent upon not just the economic developers who are promoting a region, but the economic developers, the community planners, the city planners, and everyone who's really a stakeholder in the decision making about creating that quality of place and the quality of that workforce and, and providing, call it a safe place to land for new yeah. investment. They still all have to be sort of, you know, rowing the, the 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 canoe in the same direction. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time today, Greg. Uh, we've been talking with Greg Wassmansdorf, who is uh, chair of the selectors uh, site selectors guild and uh, senior managing director for global strategy and consulting at Newmark. Fascinating views on economic development in general and mega projects and kind of where all that leads us in flyover countries. So. Appreciate you, you carving out a section of, uh, of time for us at the Flyover Coalition. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for the conversation. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Flyover Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And as always, to catch up on the latest around Flyover Country, be sure to visit www.flyovercoalition.org.